somewhere in the lower wilds, one year before the departure of the fateful Lake Wall caravan. It's never been confirmed exactly what causes the gray eyes to literally have their eyes turn gray. They had strange practices, alchemy, potions, rituals, and more. And one or more of these caused the colors of their eyes to slowly turn gray over time. This was rare in the modern days. The gray eyes, copying the successful Church of Deep Stone and Mages Consortium, began to more so stick to the proven works of the stones and abandon their other more bizarre practices. But not every gray eyes in the wilds was satisfied with just stone. Seyut wanted gray eyes. He'd been called one for some 30 years. Why not get to actually be one? He wanted to dabble in alchemy. He wanted to make potions. He wanted to experiment. Sayut watched the bristling frost on the pipes that wound around the outside of the circular stone room. They hummed as ice-cold water rushed through. He turned to the monolith and now watched as steam roiled from the inside of the large hunk of stone and floated across the floor. Funny. He'd come up with a new configuration to improve the cooling of the water in the pipes, but yet when he invented his helmet, they'd laughed. Grey Eyes did have a way of fearing the new, unless they could see how it directly benefited them. Sayut sighed and realized he'd been absentmindedly touching his helmet, which was squeezing his plump cheeks tight. Another Grey Eye sat in the room, cross-legged and using the power of the configuration to cool the pipes. Sayut jumped when the man coughed. Sayut jumped a lot these days. He walked around the circumference of the room and hummed to distract himself. He was on stone duty. It was his task to replace any stones that cracked in the configuration. The mages of the consortium had large walkways that surrounded their hulking monoliths. Sayut was only given a ladder to scale the side of the thing. This wasn't how he wanted to be spending his time. But he preferred it to being out there with the other gray eyes fighting skirmishes with the Hewn or trying to evade consortium mages. He had no stomach for danger or exploration. He wanted to be experimenting, creating a true Grey Eyes, learning more about alchemy, about plants, about the stones, their nature, about his discovery. His heart beat faster and he took a deep breath to calm himself. That was his secret for now. He glanced at the pipes again and frowned. The frost that normally covered them was receding above the door. Odd. He'd always said that using the power of the monolith to cool the exchange pipes was inefficient, but Grey Eyes are very fond of traditions, and this was the tradition. At least he'd improved the process. It was no matter. It's not like his town had a god shard anyways. He stepped closer to investigate. The first thing he noticed as he neared the pipe was the heat radiating from the wall. The second was Barlow. Barlow, an old forgotten god, only remembered in the stars by her constellation. Barlow the Builder. His mother had told him stories of Barlow. Funny, after his mother's passing, he was probably one of the few to remember Barlow. The third was the realization that this room had no windows. The constellation blazed in the sky through the enormous hole that had been blown through the wall. Ah, yes. The hole. 
His shocked brain now began to comprehend the sight of the stars and the sensation of falling. Everything else blurred together. The shouting of voices, the smell of blood and smoke, and the Odrosian priest covered in staystone. The priest stood over him. Come, Bishop Granite requires your services. Sayut was so afraid. He was never one for prayer, but for some reason, the last thing he remembered before he drifted off was praying to Barlow. The stars of the forgotten god looked down at Sayat's small village as it was destroyed and watched the young gray eyes be ferried to Lake Wall. Previously, the two students, Whisper and Tali, continue their journey to Eero under the tutelage of the mage Ifer. After having mixed results in a quiz that was supposed to determine their station once arriving at the mage's school, Ifer warned them both that they must be on their best behavior for their own safety. The church's slate seemed quite interested in the two. All the while, it would seem Ifer has not taken her own advice about staying out of trouble to heart. Chapter 3 Ice and Stars Ifair walked through the evening camp of the caravan as she munched on an apple tart. There were stalls set up at this particular camp with furs, tools, and trinkets. This was common while the caravan was still inside the confines of the wall. Beside her tart, Ifair was looking for two other things that these stalls could not provide. Fish and information. She knew exactly where to get both. And actually, she had no need for a fish. Hodge's wagon was not unusual, at least not for an ice hauler's cart. It was a large wooden box with no windows and only a small door on the back. Atop it was a weather vane several odd metal instruments, and a cross-legged mage who was deeply focused. Hodge sat stiffly upright in front of the cart. Before him was another seat, a table, and a smattering of produce. The table held an all-too-familiar board. Hodge was old, had a weathered face, and piercing blue eyes. He absent-mindedly picked at his dirty nails as he watched people pass him by. Those piercing blue eyes were always watching. That is why Ifair was coming to him with her particular request. I'm looking for some fish, she said. Oi, sit down and play for a minute and then we'll discuss fish, Hodge responded. The invite to play meant Hodge understood she was looking for more than fish. She did not enjoy this part, but she indulged the man's traditions. The game was called Allegiance. 
The game board was covered in precisely gridded lines with holes in each cell. Beside it, four containers held small colored rocks. Each person took turns putting any one of the four colored rocks in the cell. A single cell could hold up to four rocks of any combination of colors. After a decided period of moves, both parties declared an allegiance to one color. The person with the largest groups won. More complex rules came into play, such as the effects of the two non-declared colors and stones cancelling each other out. It was simple, yet to master it was complex. Efer was very good at allegiance, but so was Hodge. In this instance, skill was not the most important part, but that never stopped Efer from trying her hardest. She picked up a small red stone and placed it in the middle of the board. I hear the crops have fared nicely this year. Hodge picked up a redstone and placed it in a far corner. So they say, the wind blows gently across the crops and the smells drift off to the horizon. Some of us shall soon drift off to the horizon as well. Efer and Hodge took turns placing stones and continuing what seemed to be a disjointed conversation. The conversation was actually quite precise. They were now performing a tradition that Hodge's people had carried out for some 70 years. The playing of the game was a guise, but also integral to the process. It was a shield of sorts, to avoid any Odrosian noticing that one of the people playing was actually providing prophecies and visions. Efer obviously didn't care about the prophecy. It was simply a way that people like Hodge made their money. But playing along was all part of getting what she wanted. Information. Hodge provided both prophecy and information for a fee. The fee for information was much higher. The one condition of getting this information, though, in lines with the strange ritual, was that Efer had to win. Have you heard any news of Vocaster of late? Vocaster? They continue to believe that they are a paradise, and yet the siege of the Basilica of the Ward continues. <laughs> Vocaster is a city built on shells and bones. Even now it fades to a shadow of itself. Allegiance is an interesting game. The colors of the pieces remind me of the colors of the stones. Huh. The church believes the stones fell from the sky, you know. They think their stars come to earth. Gifts of their lord. Hodge started another small red group. I've heard the Sadon's age has caught up to him. I can only imagine the wonders the church has to do to keep their aged leader alive. What? Old and wary. He no longer runs the church nor the country. A new one will be elected. They say their lord of deep stone does not choose the Sadon. It could be considered that gods spend more time choosing meek people to serve than cardinals. Hmm. I've heard stories of parties in Lakewall of late, Efer said. She carefully placed a small piece of starred opal in the hole instead of a colored rock. The incredibly valuable currency used by Odras was universally accepted. Bodies can be to celebrate life or celebrate death, Hodge said. When he withdrew his hand, the starred opal was gone. The payment was accepted. That meant once they were done, Hodge would offer her a free choice of fish as her prize for winning. He would invite her into the cart, and there she would get answers to her questions. 
Traditionally, if the client was a friend, they would find the payment in the mouth of their fish when they left. Efair had never been given back her payment. With Hodge, few people had. I wonder if there are any large plans being made for the future. Perhaps plans for the future of the wall? Plans? Did you know that the stars used to move in the skies? Back when the church at Deepstone had someone to be the mouth of God, they say the stars would change positions in the night sky. The church read prophecies from those stars. They would record it and hide it away in their vaults. They haven't much cared since the stars stopped moving, though, I'm sure. They stopped mapping during the long silence. I've heard the archives in Lakewall were opened. Hodge fumbled a stone and swore. He then hastily said, Nothing could stay shut forever. Bear this in mind when you lock things up. He continued spewing platitudes, and Ifera continued carefully phrasing her responses and questions. When it came time to declare allegiances, Ifera chose red, anticipating Hodge would, of course, choose the weak green groups. The game was won by controlling the largest groups. Connected stones of the same color made a group, but if your opponent had their color on yours, it cancelled out. Blue, Hodge said hurriedly. Efer frowned and squinted at the board. An odd choice. Blue was perhaps in a better position, but it seemed hard to say. Maybe he wanted to appear to put up more of a fight? That's when she noticed. A blue stone had moved. But when? Ah, of course. When he'd fumbled. But why would the man be cheating? Ah, the man was trying to win. He was trying to scam her. Well, he'd have to try harder. Ifair was also an adept cheater. I heard the Cardinal of War sails to Ocean Wall. What came first? The wars or the leaders of them? It would be interesting to see how many wars would continue if the Cardinal was lost at sea. I've heard some mages of the House of the Cat have learned to craft books quicker and sturdier. Huh, an easier way for them to overreach. Learn things they shouldn't. The Black Iron Circle comes for all. The Black Iron Circle is a bedtime story told to make mages and children behave. Is there any need to differentiate between the two? I hear stories of strange contraband being smuggled outside the walls. Hodge's piercing blue eyes flicked up to Efair and he scowled. Efair saw her opportunity and took it. She deftly moved one of her red stones into the middle of one of his groups. She knew how to count the end very well. Hodge did too, of course, so this was dependent on him not noticing. Her quip should have helped with that. This move gave her an advantage of two points. When the tense game finished, Hodge counted. And he counted again. And again. Efair had won by a single point. He scowled, and then realization crept into his eyes. He gritted his teeth. He walked to the door of the cart, opened it, and ushered Efair in. Even before she was inside, she could feel the temperature drop drastically. The interior of the cart was covered top to bottom in ice. Despite the balmy weather, the ice did not melt. Ice hauling was an old trade. 
Hodge had been at it for some time and had made a decent profit. Even before the treaties, the church was fine with a bit of ice hauling. The concept was simple. A mage could control temperatures, but the farther you were from your configuration, the more energy you expended. If a mage were to try to keep even a dozen fish cooled while traveling from Lakewall to Vocaster, they would exhaust themselves. But if instead of cooling many items, you cooled only one, a large contiguous piece of ice, the exchange was far less taxing and it was much easier to do over long periods. Many were doing this, but Hodge had paid a mage from the House of the Die to figure out exactly how much exchange a mage should be using during different parts of the day and during which weather, hence all the equipment on the roof. As they closed the door, Hodge looked at her. His eyes were no longer their piercing blue, but were now the dull gray of iron, his true eye color, which he and other gray eyes used illusion to hide while in public. Although she did not agree with all of their beliefs, Ifair had always appreciated the gray eyes. She started asking her question. I want to know about... Hodge cut her off. You don't speak. I speak. But I won. I don't rightly care right now. The deal isn't in place for cheaters. Well, you cheated too. I cheated. I cheated because I didn't know the types of stuff you'd be asking. I'm not even going to get into it. I paid for information. And I gave you information. That's nonsense. You can fool others with that act, Grey Eyes, but not me. If there... What can I say to you? We grey eyes watch many things, observe many omens. I know that you simply indulge me because I'm a good source of information, but listen to me when I tell you that something is happening. The bishop sits in the middle of all this, and what might that be? I... I don't know. That's the problem. That is why I'm scared. I hear a lot of stuff every day, but these recent events... Everything is quiet. That scares me, and it should scare you too. Well, give me the information you do have. <sighs> Here's some information that might be new to you. You aren't as clever as you think you are. Those two students you're traveling with with forged documents? Not as masterful as you think. That is not the information I was looking for. I don't know the information you seek, Ifar. Tell me what you know of the travelers in the caravan then. A slate who was unshielded was watching my students recently. Why? The slate I know little of. Featherbound. He seems harmless enough. Neither he nor his companion are the normal slate who would help guide the caravans. I'm unsure why he was unshielded. Perhaps his keyholder saw it necessary that he should observe. He seems alright, but her, Larian... She once had the Sedon's ear while in Odros. The things she would have had access to in that mountain. She somehow fell out of his good graces and now I guess she's here. I hear that the Church of Deepstone is enforcing their rules of the Sacrosanct. They consider anyone who views their sacred texts and documents as property of the Church. Is this true? Hodge went still and his eyes narrowed to slits. Ifair, listen to me. Whatever it is you're planning, stop. This is the most important piece of advice I can give you. Don't leave Lake Wall. Stay for a few seasons. Ira will be there next year. There's safety in the wall. 
The sincerity in the man's voice made Ifer's hair stand on end. He truly was a good actor. I have no intention to do anything of the sort. Well, if you do, if you leave, I see nothing good in your future. If you leave, it bodes ill for you, your students, and the caravan. If you do ignore me, though, and if you do what I think you're thinking of doing, wait until the trip is almost over. Do not do it close to the beginning. Ifair bit her lip and tried to calm her extreme temper. I'll take my fish now, she said firmly. Hodge nodded and held out a large trout and then stormed out of the cart. Who did he take her for? Someone to be taken in by his doom saying like the villagers of the wilds? She wasn't some uneducated peasant. She realized when she got back to her carriage that in her anger, she'd forgotten to dispose of the useless fish. It was when she glanced at it, she noticed that there was something in its mouth. She stepped inside her carriage, understanding that the cart would reek of fish, and removed a small slip of paper from the creature. Her small chunk of starred opal fell out. So Hodge truly did like her. She opened the slip of paper and read. She flipped it over again to see if there was anything on the back. There wasn't. She didn't know what to make of the message. It was short, simple, and confusing. She immediately returned but found that Hodge had already packed up his cart and left. Other merchants said he was following his own advice, staying in Lakewell for a few seasons. Efair was left confused, holding a small piece of paper. She read it again. It simply said, Beware the stars. Hamlet Corpica two days before the departure of the fateful Lakewall caravan. Sayat's face was thin and his eyes were sunken. His spoon shook in front of his open mouth. He looked at the contents, then to the armed guards around the outskirts of the room, and then to the Bishop Granite, who was standing in front of the balcony, watching with a smile as Sayut attempted to eat. The soup smelled incredible, but Sayut knew what would happen the second the broth touched his tongue. He grimaced and put the substance in his mouth. Just like all other food he'd attempted to eat lately, it tasted of ash and sugar. He choked it down, resisting the urge to spit it out. It's, uh, it's delicious, he said with a smile, forcing himself to eat more. Ah. Oh. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I understand the conditions under which I have kept you here in Hamlet Corpica have not been ideal, alchemist. But you cannot say I have not tried to make your stay comfortable. Sayat bowed his head, as though giving thanks. But he was not. He was trying to hide his trembling face. With his head bowed, he could see that face reflected in his soup. His wish had been granted. His eyes were gray now, but they were unlike anything he'd known was possible. He had no distinct pupils, iris, or white, but instead, his entire eye was a total dark gray color. The price of his work. A price he was being forced to pay. Tremors plagued Sayat. They had for months now. 
malnutrition, exhaustion, and the simple effects of fear. But none of these were why he was trembling tonight. Tonight, he trembled with anticipation. The stars are beautiful tonight, he said. Bishop turned to look off the balcony. You know, I was responsible for those when I was younger. I worked alongside the deacons in charge of mapping the skies. I was in charge of their endeavors. Sayat already knew this information. It was how he had known to mention the stars. As the bishop peered out at the sky, Sayut carefully slid the spoon up his sleeve. A spoon couldn't really do much damage, but Sayut didn't care. Damage was not his primary concern here. He chuckled dryly to himself at the bishop's admission. Poor fool had never even realized. The stars hadn't moved, nor Odros been concerned with mapping them, since the long silence started over a hundred years ago. It made sense then that Granite was put in charge of this task. I see, a lucky man. You must truly love observing them, Sayat said. I despise them. They give us nothing. No advantage, no gain. I much prefer now overseeing our little project. This will prove itself to be very useful. Even hearing it mentioned, Sayat had to stop himself from grimacing. He felt the cold metal of the spoon in his sleeve. He was ready. Sayat rose. The guard stepped forward, but Granite signaled for them to stand back. Here's a gust, Granite boomed. Good, that was at least taken care of. Sayat walked over to stand beside the bishop and look at the stars. He forced himself to stop shaking. As a child, Sayat had once found a rushing brook in the woods. He and his friends had built a small dam. As the water built, they'd added more and more to the dam, reinforcing its fight against the dark, swirling water. Eventually, it had burst. For months now, Sayat had felt the dark waters of his work welling up inside him. Solitude and fear filled every inch of him. The dam burst, and the dark waters spilled out. They came as words at first. I see it when I sleep. Every night, I, I, I somehow travel there. It was infrequent at first. I was, I was actually elated. I, I thought it was an improvement, a part of the discovery. But <laughs> after a while, I couldn't escape it. I dread falling asleep now. I save up my strength over the course of the day, and then when I get into bed at night, I try for as long as possible to fight it off. But <laughs> it always takes me. And as I dream, I wander those halls. When I'm there, I, I know I'm being watched. I can feel someone's eyes on me, and I can never find them. I see. I can say that even despite my short time in the place, that sounds most unsettling. So, you do not take this time to simply explore? Say its throat went tight. He spoke. Wisps replaced words. Granite leaned in, signaling he did not understand. Say it spoke as loudly as he could, which still only came out as a squeak. 
I spent them hiding. Well, the new world will thank you for your service, Granite said, putting his large hand on the frail man's shoulder. Sayat looked into Granite's drooping eyes and saw the stars reflected in those dull brown orbs. It was finally time. The spoon, with enough force, could make it through the socket and kill the man. Sayat had been averse to violence in his youth, but lately, this was the only thought that gave him any joy thinking about this. He hoped this would kill the bishop, but even if it did not, it at least guaranteed release for himself. He let out a shaky breath and let the spoon slide down into his hand. It was in that reflection in Granite's eyes that he saw it. A reflection that felt familiar shone at Sayut. Barlow. Barlow the Builder, the Forgotten God. <laughs> Maybe if he'd prayed to another god, his prayers would have been answered. It took a moment of him looking at the reflection in the bishop's eyes for him to notice. He turned and stared out the window in amazement. It was impossible. Barlow was one brighter. A new star shone brightly in the forgotten constellation. The taste of chicken broth suddenly lingered on Sayat's tongue. He smacked his lips and looked from the stars to the bishop and then back again. Movement in the stars. Movement only for him. The first time since the long silence. He realized he was so incredibly hungry. He returned to his seat, retrieving the spoon from his sleeve and beginning to eat. Granite smiled. Finally, my hospitality is appreciated. Sayat simply smiled and tore hungrily into a piece of bread. He stared at the constellation, wondering where the star had come from. Had he listened closer as a child, learned the stories of the gray eyes, learned to read the stars, he would have known it was not a new star, but one that had moved. A star had carefully glided across the sky from the mountain to the builder, Sayat said another prayer of thanks to a god long forgotten, and began coming up with a new plan. Thank you for listening. Everything you hear in this show is created by me, Adam Ganong. Every word written, every note played. If the work I am doing here has brought you some joy, some comfort, some entertainment, please consider supporting a solo creator on Patreon. Link to that is in the show notes down below. The Stone Singer Chronicles art is by Peter Bartel. Thank you, Peter. There is a link to his website in the show notes. A special thanks to my wife, Jenna Noor, and my friend, Destructobot. Join the Stonesinger Chronicles Discord to get extra information about the show and officially earn your rank as the Mage of the Third Bond. Again, link to that in the show notes down below. All right, and until next time.